There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. While I'm writing my books, I tend to give them a working title until the real title emerges, often at some ridiculous 11th hour. With my latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, for the three years I took to research and write it, it was titled Wake the Fuck Up. I'd reduced the climate crisis, the political polarisation and fragmentation, Trump, the conspiracy theories, all the inequities, down to the fact that we have stopped paying attention. Now, I obviously went with a more inviting and compassionate title, but the point remains, so much of the reason why we are feeling so disappointed in and bewildered with ourselves and the world comes down to the fact that we fail to focus on the important stuff. We don't get to it. We don't practice the art of navigating it. We're not building resilience and sense-making skills. I describe it all as a bit like bobbing for apples sometimes. Your head's underwater, everything is muffled, and you're trying to bite into something. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired-up life. My guest today is Johan Hari. And while he has a thesis that explains why we've stopped paying attention, it was stolen from us. Yep, why we were uh, not paying attention. Johan writes books that are very much about bettering the world. His book about the war on drugs, Chasing the Scream, became the basis of the movie that just came out in 2021, The United States versus Billie Holiday, which I absolutely loved. And a book about depression, which I've also read, called Lost Connections. His latest book, Stolen Focus, has landed in Australia and just about everyone I know is reading it, or at least trying to. In this awesomely animated chat with Johan, I was keen to steer the focus away from the obvious, how can I stop looking at my phone kind of stuff and the individual hacks and so forth, and to instead dive into what our lack of attention is doing to us collectively and to the planet. And a shout out to my brother, Pete, who had a specific question for Johan regarding kids. Pete, I reckon you'll love his answer. For every one child who was identified with attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. Uh, one small study found that the typical American college student focuses on any one task for only 65 seconds. It's backed up by a wider body of evidence. So I really felt this, Sarah, like I could just feel it bearing on myself, right? I realised with each year that passed, 
it felt like things that require deep focus that are so important to my sense of self, like reading a book, having proper deep conversations, watching long films, was getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do it, but it was getting harder and harder. And I wanted to understand, well, why, right? Why is this happening to us? What's going on here? So I ended up going on a really big journey all over the world. I learned a huge amount about this because I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to really dig into their research. And what I learned is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. Some of them are in our tech, but they actually go way beyond that too, from the food we eat to the air we breathe. And what I learned is loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have significantly increased in recent years. So if you're struggling to focus and pay attention, it's not your imagination. And crucially, it's not your fault. This is happening to almost all of us. It's happening because of these big reasons. And the book is called Stolen Focus because your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some really big forces. I want to get to that. I I just want to pick up on a couple of the other stats. And gosh, you're a classic journalist, aren't you? You know how to respond to an instruction. I asked for some (laughs) headline statements and off you rattled. But one of them that I pulled out of the book, because I've uh, I've got the book here and I went through it with a a highlighter, such as my ability to focus. Um, (laughs) But I saw one and I've seen it come up a few times. We touch our phones 2,617 times every 24 hours. I presume that's an average. And of course, that figure I think was taken from 2016 because I didn't quite believe that you had that right in your book. I hope you don't mind, Johan, but I went and Googled it (laughs) and saw that the original study was from 2016. So I, I imagine it's even worse today. Do we have that many seconds in the day to touch our phone? That one blew me away. There's so many things that I learned for the book that just stunned me. That is absolutely one of them. And you're right, it'll be significantly worse now because that's the pre-COVID figure. And we've basically been glued to our phones since then. So what's happened to us is, is shocking. And I think when you think about the stakes of it, I would say to anyone listening, just think about anything you've ever achieved of in your life that you're proud of, whether it's you know starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar. Whatever that thing you're proud of is, it's something that took a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, as they are clearly breaking down for many of us now, your ability to achieve your goals starts to break down and your ability to solve your problems starts to break down and you start to feel just more incompetent. And this is why getting your attention back for us and our kids and a lot of books about our kids is so important because when you start to get your focus back in, in, the, in the ways that I learned about from these scientists, you're just, you become more competent again. You start being able to do the shit you need to do, right? Yeah. And that's so profoundly transformative. Yeah. And you just mentioned this a minute ago, so let's go back to it. We tend to blame ourselves. We think that this is a lack of self-will. We should be trying hard and we should get all of this sorted out. But your argument is it's actually been stolen. It's been taken from us. What do you mean by that? And who exactly has stolen our focus? Yeah, when I was struggling to focus when I was starting working on the book, I had basically had two stories in my head about what had happened to me. I basically was like, you're not strong enough. You're lacking in willpower. What's wrong with you? I would go into a kind of cycle of recrimination. And the other was, I thought, well, someone invented the smartphone and they screwed me over, right? And I later learned those are both ridiculously simplistic stories. And actually, there was a real moment of like an epiphany for me. Very early in the research of the book with, with someone based in Australia, um, there's a, 
scientist, brilliant scientist called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's the is at the University of Queensland, and he's the leading expert on willpower in the whole world. He wrote a book called Willpower. He's been researching willpower for like what forty years now. So I went to interview him, and I said to him, you know, I'm thinking of writing a book about why people are struggling to pay attention. And he said to me, the exact words are in the book, something like, oh, it's interesting you say that because I've noticed I can't pay attention so well anymore. I play video games a lot on my phone. And I sort of sit there and I was like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? Aren't yeah. you the leading the will, expert the, willpower? The willpower dude is breaks down. In the, and, whole, yeah. <laughs> in the whole fucking world. And you're telling me you just play Candy Crush all the time. It was like the moment at the end of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realise everyone's been body snatched and replaced by an alien. I was like, but even you? Mm-hmm. What hope we got? <laughs> so I had this moment of real pessimism. But then I actually learned... So just trying to restrain yourself in the moment, just going like, I'm going to have everything that distracts me all around me. I'm just going to, in that moment, be strong. Doesn't work very well. The evidence is really clear. It doesn't work very well. But what does work is understanding the 12 deep factors that are doing this to us, which go, which are more complex than we think. And then building kind of two levels of solutions. So for all of the the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus, there are two levels at which we've got to tackle them. I think of them as defense and offense, right? So there are dozens of things that we can do to protect ourselves and our kids against these factors that are invading our attention. I'm sure we're going to talk about lots of them. But I want to be really honest with people because I don't think most books about attention are. I'm passionately in favor of those things. They've really helped me. They'll really help people who are listening but they will only get you so far. Because the truth is at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time. And then they're leaning over and going, do you know what, mate? Um, You might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, well, fuck you. I'll learn to meditate. That's really valuable. But we need to stop you pouring itching powder on us all, right? Which is why we have to go on offense against the factors that are doing that. I know that can sound a bit fancy, I went to places that have done it and we can talk about very practical examples, but we've got to, it's, it's a, it's a three-step process. Understand what the 12 causes are. At the moment, loads of them I hadn't even thought about. It hadn't even occurred to me that the food we eat would profoundly damage our attention. Yeah. Understand what the causes are. Defend yourself as an individual. Then we've got to all together take on the factors that are doing this to us. And so you're saying that there's there's upstream factors and forces that are actually doing this to us. And we'll break it down a little, but I would imagine it's essentially technology and also the structure of our society, capitalism. I've got that right. They're sort of the main forces. There's a lot of factors going on. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a lot happening here. But I think it helps to start with, if it's okay, Sarah, let's look at a very obvious one that I think will be playing out for everyone listening pretty much. So I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview a man called Professor Earl Miller, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you need to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain hasn't changed in 40,000 years significantly. It ain't going to change on any timescale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is, is we've fallen for a kind of massive delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people too. And they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time and they monitor them. And what they discover is always the same. You can only do one thing at a time, but what you can do is juggle very quickly between tasks, right? You go, 
Wait, what did Sarah just ask me? What was that message on WhatsApp just now? What's on the TV there about Ukraine? What's this other message on Facebook? Wait, what was Sarah asking me? So you're juggling very quickly. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The kind of fancy technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. Um, you'll, you'll be much less creative. It brings our IQ down, doesn't it, as well? Doesn't multitasking bring it down by like 10 IQ points? Yeah, there's an incredible, it's, it's a very small study, but it's backed by a wider body of evidence. Um, Hewlett Packard, the printer company, who always calls paper jams in my experience, the word paper jam is the worst <laughs> phrase in the English language. Um, but they got a scientist in um, to, to study their workers. And what he did is he, he split this group of workers into two groups. And the first group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls at the same time. So pretty much how most of us live. And at the end of it, he tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. And to give you a sense of how big that effect is, if we sat down now, Sarah, and smoked a fat spliff together and got stoned, our IQs, very enthusiastic nod there, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points, right? So at least in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and not being interrupted than sitting at your desk, getting distracted all the time like most of us are and not getting stoned. Now, to be clear, you'd be better off neither getting stoned yes. nor being distracted. children listening at home. <laughs> exactly. He's not suggesting, and it's eight o'clock in the morning here, so we're not going to smoke oh, a spliff right. together either. We're just going to focus. <laughs> we're just going to focus. But your point remains, the multitasking, the toggling that we actually hold up as a virtue is causing us huge amounts of damage. And I think one of the statistics you cite is the fact that it takes about 23 minutes to be able to get back to an important task after we've had our attention taken off in some toggling exercise over there. You know, it's it, it has a huge toll. We're not going mad. It reminds me of the climate crisis, but also the sugar debate. And I've worked in both of these areas. And what generally happens is these big forces catch on to the fact that we're cluing on to the problem. So, for instance, Coca-Cola worked out that we were kind of figuring out this sugar issue, that it was making us fat. So they came out with a calories in, calories out concept. Totally unscientifical, no backing whatsoever, but we all bought it, didn't we? We all thought that as long as we burnt off the energy, we could eat the sugar. The sugar wasn't the problem. It was our inability to get off the couch and do a workout. And for the climate crisis, it's just the same thing. We've been lulled into this idea that mass amounts of recycling will save us, that it's not upstream. It's not the fossil fuel companies causing the problems. It's us because we're not trying hard enough. You've got a really great term for this um, that you refer to in the book called it's cruel optimism. It's pretty pretty prolific, isn't it? It's out there and it's really having a huge impact on our sense of um, agency around this. I think you put that brilliantly. So cruel optimism is a phrase from the historian Lauren Berlant, who died recently, sadly. Um, and cruel optimism is where you take something with really big structural causes, right? Obesity, for example. Think about it. You look at a picture of a beach in Australia or Britain in 1960, and like, look at the beach where Harold Holt died, for example, where you see the former prime minister, where you, you look, they film people. It looks really weird to us because everyone is what we would call slim or buff. Literally everyone, right? You, look at, like, you think, well, where's everyone else? And then you look at the figures, there was almost no obesity in Australia or Britain or indeed anywhere in the world in the early 1960s. And then what happened was 
our society just profoundly changed. The food we eat completely changed. We built cities. It's very hard to walk and bike around. And we became much more stressed, which made it harder to resist comfort eating. And as a result, so we have what's called an obesogenic environment, an environment where it's easy to become obese and hard to resist it, right? That's why a majority of Americans are now overweight or obese. Um, Something similar has happened to our attention, right? Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems, said we might want to ask if we're living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, right? One that's making it harder for all of us to focus. And cruel optimism is where you take something with these really big causes and you put all the responsibility for solving it onto the isolated individual. So think about the obesity crisis, all these structural problems. And we said the solution is for you personally to starve yourself, right? Read a diet book. And how well did that work out for us? We responded to a structural problem with individual solutions. And every year, the obesity crisis continues to get worse. Um, Now, the alternative to cruel optimism, and and it's called cruel optimism because obviously it sounds like optimism, right? You come Mm. to people and you go, there's a solution. Exactly. This is easy. Do the following three, use this little meditation app for three minutes a day. You'll get your brain back, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm in favor of meditation, but it, it sounds like optimism, but it's actually cruel because what it does is it offers the person a solution that's so inadequate to the scale of the problem that it sets them up to very likely fail. But when they fail, they'll think, well, I did the thing you're meant to do and I still can't pay attention for shit. There must just be something really wrong with me, right? Same with diet books, right? The evidence is very clear. 90% of people, I, I include, my, I am included in this, 90% of people who lose a lot of weight on diets regain it within three to five years because the environment remains obesogenic, right? Now, the alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. The alternative to cruel optimism is authentic optimism, which is where you acknowledge the scale of the problem, you acknowledge what's really causing it, and together we actually build real solutions to that problem. Now that can sound a bit pie in the sky, so I'm happy to give you lots of practical examples of places that have done that, right? Yeah, I think the cruel optimism thing, what it also does is keeps us in this place where we're still distracted because we're so myopically focused on our own failures. We remain a rat in a cage. And so what we end up doing is failing to see what the bigger problem is and where the actual real solutions can lie. So the cruel optimism piece is obviously one of the 12 factors, but there's a couple of others. And I might just pull out two that I'm particularly interested in because mostly, Johan, I'm interested in the broader impacts on society at the moment. And you cover those really, really well, particularly towards the end of the book. So the death of deep reading, that might sound like it's a fairly small thing, but you cover that in your book as as a as a one of the 12 causes. And it's something that I'm particularly concerned about because I say we've read similar studies that show that it's having huge impacts on us in our culture and our ability to attend to the important things. Could you maybe flesh out some of the aspects of this death of deep reading that concerns you? Yeah, this is. I'm so glad you asked about this because most people don't. So this is the first time in the entire history of the American Republic that in any given year, a majority of Americans don't read a single book, right? So there's been an enormous decline. 50 something, 7% or something, I think it is, yeah, is don't read a book it, in a year. It actually slightly ticked up under COVID. So we may have, it, this isn't actually the very worst year. It slightly went up under COVID, only a little bit. By the way, that one book does also include the Bible. So when you when you factor that out, it, the figure is even, even worse. It doesn't wow. include the highway code. So the thing about reading books is that, so when you read on a page, you tend to read, obviously in English, left to right. 
and we read in a linear way. The evidence shows actually when you read on a screen, you tend to read not left to right, but in a Z shape. You sort of slightly scan ahead and then go back to the start. And what's happened is as we transition from reading on the page to reading on the screen, um, actually when we then go back to reading on pages, often we then use the method we use on the screen. We sort of skim. It's funny, that's both a cause and an effect of the attention crisis because you get out the habit of linear focused reading which in turn makes reading much less pleasurable, right? It, reading becomes less like having a warm bath where you immerse yourself in it and more like dashing around the supermarket to, you know, grab whatever you need and to get out again, which is just less, less pleasurable. So yeah, this collapse of sustained reading is disastrous. I mean, there's really interesting research on this. There's lots of research where they basically give people the same information or the same story and some of them read it on a screen and some of them read it on the page. And then they go back to them a day, a week, a month. It can be quite a long time later. And they just ask them questions about what they read. And they always find what's called screen inferiority, that you remember much less of what you read on screens than you read on the page, which fits with this much wider body of evidence that when we're engaging in faster, more shallow ways, we, we remember much less, our attention is much less. One of the things we're losing because we're losing attention is just depth, depth of focus. It's why our memories are worse. Um, as you know, for the research for the book, I spent three months completely off the internet, right? Went to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod and I, I had no smartphone and no laptop that could get online. You know, when I first went, I was nearly 40. I thought, well, maybe my attention is going to shit because I'm just getting older. I was stunned by how much my attention came back. My attention was as good as it had been when I was 18. I could read books for like 10 hours a day. But I thought a lot when I was in Provincetown, this place that I went to, I thought a lot about something the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan said, which I'd never really understood. It's a kind of phrase you hear, but to be honest, I never really got it. He said, the medium is the message, right? And he was talking about the birth of television, but what he meant, if I understand correctly, I read him when I was there. We think of any new medium like television, the internet, we think of it as like a pipe where information goes in at one end and it comes out into our heads on the other. But actually, when a new medium is invented, it's more like you're putting on a new set of goggles and you start to see the world through those goggles. So every new medium that's invented, the book, the internet, television, reshapes how you see the world. So you think about television. Think about the way we think about our memories. If you picture your, child, your childhood memories, you see them now as a bit like a TV show. You remember them as like a, a film, right? You, um, that's actually not how it's human so true. memory... It's so you know true. I mean? that, yeah. That's not how human memory would have worked before people watched television, right? Of course, people have memories, they remembered things, but it worked differently. They would, their memories were structured differently. They saw them differently in their own heads. So each new medium contains what, what McLuhan said, a message about how you should see the world. So television teaches you the world is really fast, right? Everything's happening at the same time. It's really quick. You can switch very quickly between things. And I started to think a lot about what is the message in the mediums that we're immersed in all the time when I was suddenly separated from them? So think about Twitter, right? The message that is implicit in Twitter, doesn't matter whether you're Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, or Bubba the Love Sponge, when you tweet, you are expressing a set of ideas about how the world should be. So firstly, one of the messages is the world can and should be described in 280 characters, right? That is a useful thing to do. Forget nuance. Exactly. Forget subtleties. Yeah. 
or deep diving into interesting debates. Exactly. Everything should be very brief, right? I remember once seeing someone on the news say, tweet us your thoughts about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I thought, well, (laughs) nothing you have to say in 280 characters is worth fucking hearing about Israel-Palestine, right? The second message is you should respond to things very quickly, right? What matters is being very fast. And thirdly, what really matters is whether people immediately agree with these very short, very fast things that you've said. I realized one of the reasons why I feel shit, even when I'm sort of winning at Twitter, when I'm doing well, is all those messages are wrong. They're all wrong, right? Very little can be worth worth saying can be said in 280 characters. Maybe you're a Japanese haiku master. Okay, fair enough, but I don't see many of them on Twitter. Secondly, if you're saying something very fast, it's probably not worth saying. The things that are worth thinking about are the things where people have paused, contemplated, thought it through. And thirdly, it really fucking doesn't matter whether people immediately agree with you. Everyone we ever admire who's ever achieved anything and moved things forward, pretty much everyone disagreed with them at first. For a long time. Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So actually, compare that to the, or think about the message implicit in Instagram. A, what matters is how you look. B, what matters is whether people like how you look, right? That's it. Those are the messages. That's all that matters on Instagram, right? And I realized, compare that to the message in a book, the printed book, doesn't matter what the actual book is. The message in the medium of the book is firstly, slow down. Think about one thing. If you read my book, it's going to take you maybe eight hours, 10 hours, right? Depends how fast you read. Just think about this one thing for eight or 10 hours. Think it through in a lot of depth. Secondly, think about what it's like to be someone else, right? Books, particularly fiction, are all about, they're much better forms of virtual reality than what we call virtual reality machines because they're about imagining what it's like to be another human being. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if we take what you've done, and I just love the fact of pulling back to see what is this doing at a broader level and what's it doing at a deep emotional and spiritual level to all of us, we can see that it's lack of empathy. And I think reading fiction um, apparently is one of the best ways to tap into empathy. And then discernment, lack of discernment lack of ability to understand multiple perspectives. I would say that they're three things that would sum up what's going on in the world today. And I know, I think you quote Tristan Harris from The Social Dilemma quite a bit in the book, obviously. But um, one of the things he says, if I've got this right, is that technology is fracking us. It's actually making us angry and it's making us less compassionate people. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think you say it's setting us on fire. As a, as a culture? I think you've just put that really well. The only thing I would slightly tweak is it's not technology that's doing that. It's the current business model for the technology. Yeah. And I think this is really right. worth thinking about because this is especially important to me because I know this is a cause that's very close to your heart as well, Sarah. We are facing a whole series of unprecedented tripwires and trapdoors as a species, right? We have got to deal with the climate crisis urgently. And If we lose our greatest superpower, our attention, at the moment of our greatest crisis, that's going to be a real problem. So to deal with the climate crisis, we have to deal with the attention crisis. It's not a coincidence that we're having this enormous political crisis all over the world at the same time as our attention is collapsing. So what's happening is both our individual attention is being profoundly damaged and our collective attention is being profoundly damaged. And there's some overlap in the causes and you get one of them in the technology. I think this is really worth thinking through in relation 
because I think a lot about the Black Summer that, that you guys had in Australia or end the book talking about it. You know, it's incredible to me that the place fucking burned down and you still don't have a climate policy. And there's lots of reasons for that. But one of them, and I'm not saying Britain is much better, by the way, it's not. Um, uh, I it's marginally you know, better because we are literally at the bottom. Better. So anyone's yeah, yeah, better yeah. than us. <laughs> exactly. When you're being beaten by Boris Johnson, you know something's gone wrong for your country. <laughs> but the um, it's really worth us thinking about one of the mechanisms that's at worth play there. You mentioned my friend Tristana Harris who a lot of people will know, complete, I think, one of the great heroes in the world today. Tristan worked at the heart of Google, was horrified by what they're doing left and has become one of the leading dissidents in Silicon Valley. And Tristan has done a huge amount to expose some of the key mechanisms that are destroying our individual and collective attention. But since you brought about collective attention, I'm going to focus on that a bit. So every time you... let Anyone listening, don't do it now. But if you open Facebook or Twitter or TikTok now, those sites start to make money immediately. And they make money in two ways. The first way is really obvious. Everyone knows about it. You see ads. Okay, I don't need to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on those sites is scanned and logged by the artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are. So let's say that you say you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, Pauline Hansen, and you tell your mum, you just bought some nappies. Okay, so it's going to figure out, you like Bette Midler, if you're a man, you're probably gay. If you like Pauline Hanson, you're clearly right wing. And you've just bought some nappies. Okay, you've got a baby, right? It's building up a complex profile of you. Now that's partly so they can sell you to advertisers. You are not the customer. You are the product they sell to advertisers, right? Access to you. But more importantly, even more importantly, they're learning about how to hack your attention. They're learning what kind of things keep you scrolling and keep you gripped. Because every extra minute you scroll, they make more money. And every time you put your phone down, that revenue stream disappears. So all of that AI, all of their algorithms, all of their engineering genius is built around figuring out one thing. How do we get Sarah to pick up her phone as often as possible? And how do we get her to scroll as often as possible? That's it. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is, did you buy any KFC today, right? Maybe as a private individual, he cares about other things, but in his professional capacity, that's all he gives a shit about. In the same way, all these companies care about is how much do we get you to scroll? And this isn't the view just of dissidents like Tristan. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said publicly, we designed Facebook to maximally invade your attention. We knew what we were doing. We did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. But this has a huge political effect that is even more harmful. These algorithms uncovered on their own an underlying truth about human psychology that's actually been known about for more than 100 years. It's called negativity bias. It's really simple. Human beings will stare longer at things that make them upset and angry than they will at things that make them feel good. Train wrecks. Exactly. You've ever seen a train wreck, you stared longer at the train wreck than you did at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street, right? Um, this is very deep in human nature. 10-week-old babies will stare at an angry face longer than they will at a smiling face. It's probably for a very good reason in our evolution. Our ancestors who were looking out for the angry, scary people survived to be our ancestors, right? But when this combines with a business model that is designed to keep you scrolling, it has a horrific effect. So the growth of Facebook in the current business model is inherently tied to polarization, right? We grow, people become more divided and angry. In fact, they discovered that one third of all the people who joined neo-Nazi groups in Germany, in Germany, had joined because Facebook had specifically recommended it. To me, this is so important because 
Because the destruction of individual attention will diminish your own life. That's awful. Your child's individual attention being diminished will ruin their lives. And a lot of the book is about children. But if our collective attention is destroyed... Yeah. Yeah. We're a society on fire, and I think that's what we're seeing. It breaks my heart. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Johan, some of your most powerful stuff, I think, in the book is around the kids element. And we don't have time to pull it all out. People can go and read read the book themselves to sort of hear about it. But you dedicate a fair bit of it to children because, of course, that's got broader implications. But I'm going to um, ask a question, a request that came from one of my brothers, Pete. Oh, hi, Pete. Yeah, hi, Pete. He's, he lives in Vanuatu and um, he's the antithesis of a helicopter parent. He's... Um, very wild. He was a wild child and his children um, lived to a similar beat of, of the drum. You know, there's chickens running through the house and, you know, I remember calling him during COVID and there was homeschooling and everybody else was going mad and he, I could see in the back, I said, what are, you, what are they doing? My niece and nephew. They, were, they had the electric drill and some bits <laughs> of wood. This is a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And I said, Pete, you're like, Love don't it. put that up on Instagram. And he said, you know, we, didn't worry, he's got a Nokia. So anyway, <laughs> but look, he had a question because he's really concerned about this. He's he's very vigilant and aware of, of the way he does things. He's not reckless. He wanted to know whether wild play and free play had an impact, good or bad, on children's attention. Could you answer that one for us? Yeah, Pete, you are very sane and the evidence on this is overwhelming. So there's been a big explosion in children's attention problems. It's not a coincidence that at the same time there has been a profound transformation of childhood. There's been lots of changes. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. They eat food that is profoundly damaging their attention. They're exposed to tech. There's all, the way our school system is designed, Jesus, if you wanted to design a school system that would ruin children's ability to focus and pay attention, you would design a school system that was built around meaningless tests and memorization, which is what we've got. Um, but actually, I think that, that Pete has gone to the absolute heart of it so the, one of the heroes of my book, Stolen Focus, is a woman called Lenore Skenazi. You should totally have Lenore on the podcast. Remind me and I'll, I'll introduce you. She's a fucking yeah. amazing human being. And Lenore is the hero of the book, one of the heroes of the book, not because she talks about the problem. Talking about problems is easy because she's built the solution. And it's a solution everyone watching that you can implement, right? If you're a parent, grandparent. So Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. From when she was five years old, she would leave her house on her own and walk to school. 
And she would bump into all the other five, six, seven-year-olds because all the kids walked to school on their own. And when they got to the school, close to the school, there was a busy road. There was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to help the five-year-olds cross the street, right? They're going to school. And then at three o'clock, they'd be let out. They'd leave on their own. All the kids would just play freely in the neighborhood. And they'd go home at like five or six when they were hungry. That is what childhood looked like for all human beings then and pretty much up to that point. There were a few exceptions to child labor in the 18th century, but pretty much children played freely with other kids, right? By the time Lenore was a mother in Queens in New York in the 1990s, that was over. By 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outdoors without an adult supervising them, right? And that 10% only got like 10 minutes a week. So basically it was over. Childhood became something that either happened behind closed doors or happened outdoors with an adult standing over the kids supervising them. And it turns out that childhood we've lost contains loads of things that are really important for attention and focus. To give the most no shit Sherlock one, exercise, right? Evidence is overwhelming. Kids who get to run around can pay attention better. They have more brain connections. The best thing you can do for kids who can't focus, or any kid for that matter, is let them go and run around and come back. You know, Finland, Finland by law, children cannot have 45 minutes without being given 15 minutes to run around. They have the lowest level of diagnosed attention problems in the world in children, right? Well, in South Korea, I talk about this a fair bit. Um, Kids that have behavioral issues, their first port, port of call is to take these kids out to a forest and essentially take them hiking, walking in nature, which has been shown time and time again that it has an incredible effect. It's so wise and it's not rocket science, you know. It turns out that when children play freely with other children without adults telling them what to do, they learn a huge amount that is essential for attention. So Dr. Isabel Benke, the great Chilean scientist I interviewed, has done a lot of work on this. So firstly, when children play freely, they discover what they find interesting. And that is really important for attention, right? Attention evolved to attach to meaning. When you discover what you find interesting, we all know this, when you find something really interesting, it's much easier to pay attention to than when you don't, right? Also, you children learn how to persuade other kids to pay attention to the stuff they find interesting. And they learn how to take their turn. You also pay attention to the stuff the other kids want to play at. You also learn how to be brave and how to take risks. And that's really important because if you don't learn those skills, you're anxious all the time and anxiety profoundly damages attention. So you learn these crucial things. And when you take away free play and replace it with supervised play or with just video games, although video games, not against video games all the time, but if you replace it with just that, children don't learn those skills, right? They become much more anxious. They don't feel competent. They don't really know what interests them. They find it harder. So Lenore could see all that. And at first she thought, well, the solution is obvious. I'm just going to persuade parents to let their kids play outside. So she would go to parents and she'd say something like, tell me about something you did when you were a child that you don't allow your own children to do. And people would be like, oh, I used to go into the woods. I used to put 10 marbles in my mouth and roll them around. All sorts of like things they used to do. But Lenore discovered quite quickly, it just doesn't work to only persuade individual parents. Because if you're the only parent who lets your child out, they get scared, you look nuts, and actually often people ring the police. So yeah, Lenore- I mean, I think Pete, Pete appreciates that. I mean, and my parents also <laughs> copped it. I know that um, Did they? my youngest brother, he's number six, and uh, I, I know that there were parents that had an issue with their kids coming around because the, the way that my parents parented, which was to allow a very, you know, a fair amount of freedom, they weren't comfortable with it. 
you know. Um, so interesting. And I think it's a very big factor. So, yes, sorry, I interrupted. Please continue. No, no, no. That's re- but that's really important because that was part of the cultural shift that was happening at the time when we were kids. So Lenore was like, how do you reverse that cultural shift? So what she does, she runs a group called Let Grow. It's letgrow.org. I really recommend people go and look at it and, and get involved. So what Let Grow do, and I went to see a lot of their projects, they go to whole schools and whole communities and they persuade everyone to give their kids increasing levels of freedom that build up to letting them play outside. And of all the conversations I have for Stolen Focus, I think probably the most moving was with a 14-year-old boy at an Electro program in Long Island. So he was a big, strong 14-year-old boy. He was taller than me and I'm not short, right? And until this program had begun nine months before I went there, he had never been allowed out of his house on his own. His parents wouldn't even let him run around the block. And I said to him, why, why did your parents not let you out? And he said, because they're afraid of all these kidnappings. You know, this area where he lived, you know, the olive oil store is across the street from the French bakery. It's a bit like Bondi where you are, right? Um, And he had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in Ukraine right now. And then he joined the Let Grow program. The Let Grow program arrived in his area. Everyone in the school joined up and he started to play outside with his friends. I said to him, what did you do? And he said, oh, well, first we played uh, basketball. And then we went into the woods and he said this, he sort of leaned in and said it in a slightly lower voice. He said, our phones didn't have signal in the woods and we still went there. And I said, what do you do in the woods? And he said, we built a fort with our own hands. And now we go into the fort and we build loads more things. And as this boy was talking, maybe it sounds melodramatic, but it really felt like I was watching this boy come to life. right? And I thought about how many kids I know older than him where the only place they ever get to explore anything is on Fortnite or World of Warcraft. We can hardly be surprised they become so obsessed with them. And Lenore was with me that day. And when that boy left, she turned to me and she said, think about all of human history, right? Human beings had to go out and they had to explore. Young men and women went out and they explored. They mapped the territory, they hunted, they built things. And then in the space of one generation, we took all that away from them. And that boy, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, what did he do? He went into the woods and he built a fort because this is so deep in human nature. So obviously in Stolen Focus, I talk about lots of things, well, lots of things we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and our kids, but also lots of big things we have to do collectively to get attention back. And I would put top of the list, we need to restore childhood. Because if kids don't develop attention through free play, through all the things we're talking about, they're going to really struggle for the rest of their lives. They're going to be, they're going to die, but they're going to be less competent than they would have been. If we can get kids switching the way that they've been raised, then they've got a better chance of being discerning thinkers. You've written three books now. One was about the drug epidemic. One was about depression, lost connections, which I've read as well. And this latest one, Stolen Focus, all of them pivot from problems that are dealt with in one particular way, but really when you go down and drill down to the cause, it's like the real issue is a lack of meaning, a a denial to the mechanisms that allow us to access meaning and to create meaning in our lives. Would I have that right as the sort of the link that brings all of the books together? I think that's definitely one of them. I think you've put that brilliantly, Sarah. I mean, I think another thing that connects them is everyone watching and listening knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, 
you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be obviously in trouble really quickly. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. I'm very glad to be alive today. I'm a gay man. Believe me, I'm glad to be alive today. But we are, we've been getting less and less good at meeting many of these deep underlying psychological needs for a long time. And then COVID came along and our psychological needs just absolutely went off a cliff. But for understandable reasons, we had to suppress the virus. But, you know, it's not a coincidence that depression doubled under COVID, right? And our psychological needs weren't met. We became even lonelier. We became even more screen-based. So yeah, I think there's a, a strong connecting thread there. And the thing, the main thing that, you know, I left the book really optimistic because it doesn't have to be this way, right? And it's what I really want to explain to people. You know, if even if you just think about, we were talking about the tech component before. An amazing man named Dr. James Williams, who again, like Tristana, worked at the heart of Google, was horrified and left. He said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone had an idea to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can solve this shit, right? On the one side of the race, you've got all these factors that are on course to hack us more. On the other side of the race, you've got to have a movement of all of us saying, fuck no. No, you don't get to do this to us. You don't get to do this to our children. That is not a good life. We don't want to live in your metaverse. No, we choose a life where we can focus, where we can pay attention, where we can think deeply. We can win that fight. Yeah. We're much more powerful than Facebook. Well, I think it's really worth using the example that you use in the book. And it's one that I like to refer to as well. It's not that long ago that we were doing this stuff. I mean, you're referring to stuff in the 1960s, but let's cast our mind back to the mid 80s with um, CFCs and the greenhouse effect. Now, you know, and, and it, it was really real. There was a big hole in the ozone layer. We got worried. The scientists came out. And because we were paying attention, because there was less bombardment of information, these algorithms had not started to infiltrate our lives, the scientific information got through. We protested en masse and said we don't want these, we don't want the ozone layer. And it was a big thing in Australia because the ozone layer was kind of squarely above us. It's not know? very far away, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so it was, it was a really big thing. And what do you know? some of the most conservative governments in the world. We're talking Thatcher, right? And um, George Bush Bush Senior. And the Soviet Union, they're exact opposite as well. Everybody got on board and banned these aerosols, CFCs, that were causing the problem. And what do you know, in 2022, that hole's almost shut. Problem almost solved. It'll be solved by, I think, 2040 or something like that, well ahead of schedule. I mean, that's a great news story. And I think you really accurately pin it down to the fact that we were paying attention. The scientific information didn't get crowded out by all the anger. And and the job got done because there wasn't that fractured society on fire element going on. I think you put that so well. And imagine that crisis happened now. Right. So what would happen is you'd be some you get some people who wanted to follow the science, they'd wear a little ozone layer badge, they'd build a big identity out of it. Then you'd get a whole load of other people who said, Well, how do we even know the ozone layer exists? So look, I've taken up a fair bit of your time and I, I enjoy your brain, Johan. 
wondering though, if you could actually just tick off a couple of the personal things that you do. And I know you've got some sort of tricks some hacks that en- enable you to take a little bit of control of your personal attention. I'm more interested though, as you've probably gathered in what we can do more broadly, movements, ideas, political thoughts and theories that we can keep an eye out for and follow closely with our, our newfound attention. So this is my K-safe. So it's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial, you push the button and it locks away your phone for anything between five minutes and a whole day, right? And you actually can't get into it, can you? Like once you, you smash it with a hammer if you wanted to, but that's, you'd have to smash it and have to buy mm. another K-safe and it's like fairly expensive. I will not sit down and watch a film with my boyfriend unless we both imprison our phones. I won't have people around for dinner unless they all agree to put their phone in the phone jar. And people get really antsy at first. I'll say to them, you're not the president of the United States. You don't need to issue orders because Ukraine's been invaded, right? And it's my brand. I write about this shit. I could be sprung. Yeah. Well, you'll get... But also, the, the minute it's locked away, you can see it. They think more deeply. They're more relaxed. So that's an example. Another thing is one of the 12 factors that I write about is sleep. I massively prioritize sleep now, much more than I used to. When you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. It's healing itself. If you don't give yourself eight hours a night, your brain doesn't heal. And most of us aren't. In fact, only 15% of us are waking up feeling refreshed. So I go through lots of things people can do to get to better sleep. Um, in terms of a big collective thing, obviously I go through loads of things in the book, but I'll give you one specific example, which is sort of like the equivalent of the case safe for the whole society. So I use my case safe for four hours a day to, so I can write. And I'm conscious when I say that, loads of people listening will just think, well, fuck you, Johan, I can't do that. I've got a boss who might message me. How can I do that? And they're absolutely right. That's why we need to have the collective layer of fighting on this. So in France, in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And the French government was pressured by labor unions. It's really important to stress this would never have happened, Ed. French workers not organized and demanded. French workers, you know, I've got some criticisms of them, but fucking hell, they organize, right? They're so good, the French. <laughs> exactly. They, yeah, they whinge and wipe out a lot, but it generally leads to some good stuff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so French workers were like, we're too burned out, sort it out. So the government set up an inquiry to figure out what was going on. And what they discovered, they discovered, one of the, they discovered lots of things, but one of the key reasons was that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phone or email because their boss could message them any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble. So I can give all those people all the advice in the world about buy a K-safe, sleep more, all the other things I go through in the book. They can't do it, right? They can't do it. If you're going to lose your job, if you do it, they're not going to be able to do it, right? And I remember when, when we were kids, Sarah, the only people who were on call were doctors and they weren't on call all the time, right? We've gone from almost no one being on call to almost half the economy being on call, right? Well, that's not sustainable. So again, under huge pressure from organized labor, the French government introduced a solution, very good, simple solution. It's called the right to disconnect. It's in law. And it says every French worker has to have their work hours laid out in their contract. And every French worker has the legal right to not check their phone or their email after those work hours are finished. So when I I went to Paris just before the plague to look into this, and just before I was there, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, was fined 70,000 euros for getting one of their workers to check his email, for telling him off for not checking his email an hour after he left work. Now you can see how the right to disconnect 
is a big political collective goal. It'll only happen if we fight for it, right? But it's a collective goal that then frees us up to make a lot of the individual changes we want to it's make. Structural. Exactly. And the thing about the structural things is sometimes people pose this as, well, there's either the individual solutions or the collective solutions. And what I always say is the collective solutions make the individual solutions possible. People sometimes people say, well, okay, that's a collective thing, but what can I do? And I always say to them, the collective thing is something you can do. It will only happen if you and lots of other people do it. I don't accept the division between the individual and the collective. It's collective change. We sometimes people think collective change is these things that are sort of delivered by politicians. But, you know, Rebecca Solnit, the brilliant American writer, always says, politicians are weather vanes and it's our job to be the weather. Johan is a man with a lot of intellectual love and many a great anecdote to give in the service of getting us to wake the fuck up to the stuff that matters. If you tend to like it when I give a succinct list of things to go and do or reflect on following an episode, here's a bunch to start with that I got Mike, my producer, to pull out. Hey, Sarah. Yes, so many takeaways in this episode. My first one was realizing that I can't do six or seven things at the one time. I'd like to think I can, but I can't. Johan called this the switch cost effect. So I'm going to try and do one thing at a time really well, rather than multiple things at once. Also, I loved how we talked about reading, reading as a warm bath, reading for pleasure. And that's something I can do. You know, I'm reading a lot for work on a screen, but really picking up a book and enjoying the read and thinking about how that might change my worldview. That was that Marshall McLuhan bit, the medium is the message, just fascinating. And finally, I don't know if I'm going to buy one of those safes for my phone, but any reminder to put the phone down, have it in a different room and just enjoy that space without it is is a good one and something I can do. Thanks, Mike. For me, the broader implications of our stolen focus grab my attention and mobilise me to fight back. As we discuss, it's one thing to not be able to focus on tasks, but it's another to not have the kind of focus that can get us to map out a life for ourselves and our society and our kids and for our planet. Johan flags that all of it is manufacturing mass consent, a passive kind of consent where we're too distracted and too removed from being able to make sense of things, to debate or question, to bring in nuance, to defend what matters. Decisions and calamities, injustices that none of us signed up for are happening and by the time we realise they are, it's too late. And then, of course, we're also too bamboozled and overwhelmed to fight or say, as Johan says, fuck no. And so we get wars we didn't see coming, floods we say we weren't warned about, fossil fuel corruption happening under our noses. We can start to say fuck no, and we can do it straight away. Thank you for joining me once again. And until next time, stay wild. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.